Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is Clint Fiore. Clint has an awesome story about how he worked from the ground up to the eventual exit of a company that sells giant fake trees for hunters. Based out of Texas, his primary customers were very wealthy ranchers who had big game farms, safari-like hunts, who would replace their shacks that they had on stilts with these humongous fake trees. But Clint goes into the cash flow problems that he had, how he eventually exited from the business. He's got a ton of experience with raising capital, what it is like working with angel investors, and then his migration into buying and selling businesses for clients in the middle market. With all of Clint's wisdom, he has tons of information to share. I hope you enjoy the episode. Without further ado, here's Clint. Clint, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Ryan. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I, uh, I'm pretty excited for today's show. You and I met each other at uh, John Worlow's Value Building Summit, and I uh, had some really cool conversations, and some of your past really sparked my attention because of some of the very cool experiences you've got. And why don't you take us back, uh, for the listener's sake, to the first day that you really realized that you were an entrepreneur as you had jumped into the Nature's Blind business that you're in. Okay. So reading books is dangerous. So that's probably my first thing I wanted to say is I was a salesman by trade. I, I was sold a couple different things, but I was entrenched in a insurance company that was an aviation specialist. I'm an, I am a pilot by background and have an, ed, have an education in that uh, degree in aeronautics. So that was what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I ended up in a career selling really expensive pieces of paper to airplane owners and in the uh, insurance world, but I was reading business books. And one day, this uh, meeting happened. I, I, I had all these people saying, you need to meet this guy, Tim. You need to meet this guy, Tim. And I finally met this guy, Tim. And he's this crazy artist guy that met me over coffee early one morning. And he had seven patents for this, uh, basically a giant fake tree that you can hide inside for hunters <laughs> and outdoorsmen. That's what he had. <laughs> that was his dream. That was his idea. He wanted to make a company that... Uh, that sold fake trees that you can hide inside. His background was was working with foam. Like, you know, when you go to an amusement park or see a movie set where they make really lifelike things that are featherweight light out of foam, uh, that's what he did for a career. And then his passion was hunting. And he decided he wanted to build products out of that material, out of that lightweight foam that could hide hunters in plain sight. You know, just what if I, I, I could walk around with a a tree around me or what if I could hide in a tree and, 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 uh, anyways, he had this idea, but he was going broke cause he didn't know how to bring it to market. And so here I am, this salesman, uh, for an insurance company who's reading business books. And all of a sudden I connect to this dreamer, uh, inventor, artist guy 
who's got patents and knows how to make cool looking stuff, but doesn't know how to do a business. And I guess I had read enough books at that point that I was like, you know what? I could do that. I bet if, if we could make it, we could sell it. And, uh, his problem was he made everything by hand. and didn't know how to manufacture. And so it, it started keeping me up at night thinking about it. Like, man, if we could just do this and we could do that, and you know, you're, I'm sure you've been in that situation around or you're building the business in your head. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the idea is driving you nuts. And so I was just kind of kept having meetings with this guy. And then finally one day I snapped I, that's the, the, the entrepreneurial spasm, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say, uh, I called my good buddy that was in real estate, making a lot more money than me as my best friend. I'd never asked him for anything ever, but he's pulling in, you know, like serious money. And I said, you know what, Jason, I'm going to ask you for 10 grand and I just want you to understand you're probably going to lose it. Like you're probably never going to see this $10,000 again. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So it's a really good pitch, but he's like, why do you need 10, why do you need 10 grand? And I'm like, cause I want to make a giant fake tree. (laughs) You can hide inside. And anyways, I stumbled through my, my pitch and he said, all right, I'll give you a shot. And he's like, what's in it for me? I'm like, well, if we make a, I'm going to make a prototype and if the prototype comes out right, I'm going to go get a big investment from a, from somebody else, and then I'm going to give you a, a piece of ownership of the company that'll be a way better deal than ten grand. And so that was my pitch, and he he did it mainly thinking he was going to he he admits he thought he was going to lose the money and just was throwing me a bone. But anyways, I I flew out a master mold maker. We worked together with him and myself and a couple friends, and we figured out how to make a prototype for a what we thought was minimum viable product for this company. Three weeks later, uh, we, by, by some moments of favor of God or something, we, we ended up being connected to this guy that was in town buying ranches and he owned a bunch of ranches and was a hunter. And he happened to come by and see our prototype. And, and Tim called me in a panic. I was working selling insurance, right? And he says, Clint, you got to come out here. There's some rich guy coming in and talking. <laughs> and you you know how to talk numbers and stuff. I'm like, okay. And so I took my <laughs> lunch break and, and went on my lunch break and met this guy. And he starts just grilling me. Okay, so how do you, what is this? How does this work? How, how are you going to make it? How are you going to sell it? What are you going to charge? And I hadn't even written the business plan yet. But I had been spinning all these thoughts in my head, and I somehow was able to just rapid fire a bunch of answers that I guess he liked enough. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and I, it's one of these stories that's like almost, I don't know how to duplicate this, or, but it just happened, okay? And, and this, is, this is how it went down. And so by the end of a 30 minute conversation, the guy asked me, Well, how much money do you need to get started? And I didn't even really know. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done my. You know, my I hadn't finished my spreadsheets and I hadn't finished my plan, but I was ballparked. I said, you know, about half a million because that's what I need. And he said the thing after that that was, well, I think I can get you a check next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. Now I've got a business. <laughs> yeah. And so I went home from lunch. I went to work and I uh, I told my boss I, I needed to put in my two weeks notice. <laughs> that afternoon? And that that day. And... <laughs> It was literally the stupidest thing ever because 
you you don't do that. The money wasn't in the bank yet, and that was everyone's advice. It's like wait, wait till that you know, wait till it clears the bank before you <laughs> kill your career that you're making tons of money in. And um, but I don't know. I just did it, and so you I asked my wife you- first. Yeah, and she was cool with it, but. Yeah. So did yeah. you tell you? So you tell your boss? Did he ask you why? And did you say that I'm going to sell fake trees? Is that what yes? That your- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, it was really funny because I was. Uh, it was a 50 person company, and I was the number one salesperson for this company, and so I was making them a lot of money. And and it was kind of this. Well, what is it going to take to keep you? Conversation, and it was it was already a done deal, in my mind. And I was just like, you can't. I got to go sell fake trees. And uh, it was funny because I'm not even much of a hunter. Uh, I, was <laughs> I didn't ask know you much. That. No, I, I'm passionate about business. Tim was passionate about hunting, but I just felt like we could, we could do it, you know? And I just believed it. And I knew that ultimately the, the thing that, that helped me and my wife make that tough decision is just knowing, you know what? I know how to sell. I've switched sales careers a few times and the logic was what have I got to lose? You know, like I'm getting somebody throwing me a half million dollars to make an attempt at this. And guess what? If it doesn't work, what are we back? We're back to broke. That's where we are right now. And, um, and someone will always hire me to sell stuff and I can always get a job. Um, so so obviously you don't being being a, a you know, a salesman myself from the day I was born. You got to be passionate about what you're selling too. And obviously, you 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 knew enough about this fake tree. And and for the listeners here, my business partners and, and I are both avid hunters. And my business partner is a freak hunter. And he totally knew what this blind was when when you talked about it when we were having drinks. And so it obviously. And I, I'm kind of here excited to hear how the how the company blew up, but. You had done your market research, and it wasn't just something that you were just like, "Oh, this is a fake tree." I mean, it's a kick-ass fake tree, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So i I wasn't anti-hunting. I, I had hunted a couple times, and I wanted to hunt more. But in Texas, it's it's you know, ninety nine percent of the land here is owned privately, and so you kind of have to know people that own land if you want to hunt. And around here, it's just a big money. I'm in Central Texas in the Hill Country, where it's it's kind of the hunting and recreation uh, capital of Texas, I would say. And around here, it's a bunch of big ranches and exotic ranches and big, big money um, hunting. I mean, you can hunt like you're in Africa around here for all kinds of animals. It's, it's amazing. Um, so anyways, I knew it was big money industry. I had been somewhat exposed to it just by living here. And I was like, man, if we can make this product, there's no amount of money that people won't spend to have an edge and to have, and, and I just knew that instinctively and, and thought that if we could make the best thing, then we could make money. And, and so that's, that's what gave me the, the confidence to do it. I learned hunting really fast because in the six months before we went to market, we were, we were building prototype after prototype and going on a whole bunch of hunts. And the investor that backed us owned a bunch of ranches. And so we had our early prototypes all over the place on Texas ranches. And I went on tons of hunts and, uh, that was really cool. It, it, that was a fun part of the job. I, I bet I, I would absolutely love to do that question for you because you've got a, a lot of experience about raising money. I mean, first of all, you raised 10 grand with your pitch to lose it. So that's obviously you're definitely a good salesperson, but what, what, so as you talk to this investor, he gave you 500 grand, how, you know, without any, you know, real company at this point, 
how are you valuing the business? How are you raising money? What are the terms and conditions you're putting in place for these different people that have uh, that have trusted in your vision? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was just making it up as I went, but essentially uh, the way the way we structured it, the the guy that invested, he was no dummy. Like he's it wasn't his first rodeo. He invested in about five other startups at the same time. He was a serial angel investor and also the CEO of a major company that ended up getting bought by Berkshire Hathaway. So he's got some pretty deep pockets, pretty heavy hitter angel. And we were kind of his fun company. Like out of the five investments he had just made, we were the last and we were the smallest and we were kind of the biggest long shot <laughs> of, of an idea. And so he just kind of he liked us. He, he liked him. He liked me. He liked the general plan and he thought we had a chance and he liked the prototype and he just let us take a shot. And, uh, what he ended up doing was he owned, I think it was a third of the company or so. I don't know the exact numbers, but he structured it to where that half a million was a loan on the books. Um, and so essentially he got equity and I got a, I had a minority position. I think I had about a quarter of the company. Tim, the inventor, had more than that. And then there were some other key employees we hired that all got small stakes. And there ended up being seven of us that had equity. And the investor kind of had, if we ever sell or start making money, then he's going to get his half a million back before we all get, mm-hmm. get paid. So he's kind of first money in, first money out. Uh, set up and that's how we structured it and looking back I and mean, it was a pretty smart way for him to do it where he had tons of upside and then he also had we, we carried that that note on the books from him mm-hmm. um, so then you'd probably I mean with some market research or I mean for that half a million dollars that you had some sort of idea of like what the potential was is it was it just mainly a conversation like hey we think we can sell four million dollars of this so you get your 500 grand back hopefully in a couple years or something like that yeah so there's there's a big it's a big industry uh and we we figured we could uh and and we were right you know we figured if we could make it right we could be kind of the the ferrari of of hunting blinds mm-hmm. uh and do you think most of your listeners Ryan aren't going to be familiar with hunting blinds do i need to explain what that is um, I'd say, you know, up in Minnesota, we got a, quite a few hunters, but why don't, why don't you give everybody a little bit of it? Cause it is cool. And, and I'll, yeah. and I'll, I'll attach a picture in the show notes too. Okay. So around here, like I said, most of the, the, the hunting is rich people on private land on really big ranches and people put structures up that are basically boxes made of plywood or plastic, usually on stilts. And those are called hunting blinds. And they have plexiglass windows. They're really loud. They make noise when you climb into them and scare off the animals. They get hot in the summer. Wasps get in them. They basically suck. They don't hide you very good. (laughs) (laughs) And people with these multi-million dollar ranches put these ugly things all over them. And what we, the idea is, what if we made these hyper-realistic trees that you could put all over your private property that were like a hunting hotel, you know, like, like, uh, Imagine a big fake tree with a door that opens up and the windows look like knot holes in the tree and it's it's made out of this high density closed cell foam so it's insulated, it's comfortable, it muffles your sound and scent and that's what we created. It was basically the ultimate thing. And you can put those things on a property and deer will walk by the next day 
without even their brains don't even see it as a man-made thing and it just it works amazingly and when we tested it in the field we were just blown away and we had lifelong hunters like do you know who larry wysoon is ryan Mm -hmm. mr whitetail he's super famous uh as a as a hunter uh he he did the first kill out of a nature blind and we placed it that day like early morning in the dark and then he got he's a pistol he does pistol hunting and he took a he took a doe with a pistol from about 10 yards after watching about 50 deer walk by within 10 yards (laughs) and he was like i've never seen he's just sold us man this is the real deal i've never seen anything like it and so it was it was getting a lot of credibility from people that really knew what they were talking about. And, uh, so couple that, questions, a C- couple questions then, because, um, one is when you got someone like Mr. Whitetail and you get, and you've got a couple cool stories that I want to hear about how fast the word spread. So, you know, you got this thing where, I mean, when you got a fake tree that looks that real, I mean, that's something that everybody talks about. So the word of mouth and just the overall spread of your brand has to be like wildfire because again you've got just look at the demographics of your clientele so one want to hear a little bit about that story but how did you price this is my first question incorrectly <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting response tell me more so <laughs> we were way off on what we th- what so we went to market um and and the philosophy of all of us myself and the other founders and the angel investor is we wanted to just hit it hard and fast before we had a bunch of people copying us because we thought that once we hit the market, there would be a lot of Me Too's coming behind us uh, once we kind of changed the game. And so we wanted to just dominate. And But what ended up happening, Ryan, is we, we kind of built a Ferrari and we priced it at Honda price. Uh-oh. And, and we, thought, we thought that was that we could do it, but we didn't really know what we were doing manufacturing and, and ended up being four times more than we thought it was going to be to make it. And so we kind of, that was the big mistake we made was we underpriced it out of the gate on some false assumptions about costs that we ended up learning the hard way. Um, so yeah, today that, that product is about $4,500 and we were trying to bring it to market in the two to 3000 range. Mm. And we were the first batch. We were losing money every every one we shipped out the door, which that sucks. <laughs> right. But but yeah. So it is a premium product in the marketplace. And since then, they they've developed a line of lesser lesser cost products. But we we decided uh, we switched our business game plan. We we had like a mass market hundred two hundred dollar product that that was a portable blind. We were gonna start with just to be lower risk. But when we saw the big one, we built the big prototype. And we just saw, wow, it was a showstopper. And we just said, go big or go home, baby. <laughs> we're gonna build the <laughs> we're gonna build the big one. And so that was the first one we took to market was our flagship called the Tree Blind. And that was a fully enclosed, seven foot tall, you can fit a couple people in it, three hundred sixty degree tree, fully enclosed blind. It was really cool. And so I would show up to these shows and uh, it's a huge product. It looks like a giant tree stump that should weigh several thousand pounds. And it looks super realistic. And I would wheel it in. In reality, it only weighed 300 pounds because it made of foam. And I would be wheeling it into trade shows on a hand cart. <laughs> Imagine this. Like, yeah, I'm picturing it right now. <laughs> one guy with like a dolly, you know, pulling this thing in. And in these hunting shows where all the other vendors are just firearm companies and bow companies 
and that you know it's our new product one percent better than it was last year you know yeah, there's right. no there's not a lot of innovation going on and we were like rolling that thing down the aisle just to get to our trade show booth we were like we were like the pied piper everybody's just dropping what they were doing and following us and be like what the heck is that thing you know and and we ended up yeah like you said just it's the word spread like wildfire and and we went kind of uh rock star product uh won a lot of awards got a lot of virality uh, of the brand but um yeah definitely had sales and the brand get ahead of our of our manufacturing prowess well, and tell, skills. Yeah, and tell me a little bit more about that because um, you know if you go to market with a you know an incorrect pricing structure like you had and you spread that fast, tell me about like where did things start to to where were the stress cracks? How did you guys deal with it? Yeah, so it created a lot of stress because um, our costs were out of control at first as we were figuring out how to make it. Um, we were basically trying to mass produce almost like a giant piece of art, you know, like there's so much labor that goes into these things and the product, the materials we use, everything we didn't want to compromise on the product. And so everything was expensive. And then every step of the manufacturing process, we had to invent a new thing because nobody had ever made something this big, that realistic that could be duplicated on that scale. And so we kind of had to bake it bake into the cost a bunch of innovation um in the manufacturing process and it just made everything expensive and and so yeah it was this fine line ryan of walking this okay we recognize we underpriced it but you don't want to immediately double your price the second you (laughs) you you know you're going to take everybody off and and we had gone to market and printed catalogs and pricing sheets. And so we kind of had to incrementally start bumping up our prices as we could while seeking to cut costs without sacrificing quality. And we just kind of got into that a year to 18-month slog of just trying to keep up with the back orders, reduce costs, preserve our reputation, and try to eke out a little bit of profit. But that was the real hard part. So how... You know, if you've got just kind of curious on uh, number of sales, like what's what's your revenue hitting as you're 24 months in, and like you've got a half million dollar loan on the book for your angel investor. I mean, were you able to start paying him off? What did, where was he involved with the pricing structure and how the costs uh, were were being accounted for? Explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, so he was he was being very patient, thankfully and was letting that half million just ride on the books. And then as we came back from shows with purchase orders, we realized we had to scale up. And so he actually helped us buy a larger building, outfit it. So he got in a lot deeper than a half million. After we had sales, uh, he wanted to fulfill it and and scale up. And so uh, we got a million and a half line of credit, plus a new building and all, and all his gear, and we hired up. And so we started with a team of of five or six and then ended up uh with 50 employees in about 18 months i mean it was insane but yeah we hit our first 12 months over two million in sales and it was just growing and we were putting the brakes on i mean we could have probably done five or five million but but we just we kept having to push our our projected ship dates back and we had to reach a point where it's like okay we're not taking orders (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's that was a crazy crazy problem to have so 
let, let's I want to kind of glue some of this together because if you're underpricing it, your costs are out of control, and you're constantly getting more and more deep, how do you fix that, or how did you fix that? Well, it was a all hands on deck situation. You know, we there wasn't an easy answer, so we fixed it a few ways. We added new products that we more dialed in the costs and pricing on, so we could actually make up some margin by selling other stuff where we are actually making money on it. Meanwhile, the tree blind was still selling like crazy and we're, we're bumping up our prices while trying to keep our reputation and, and, um, and relationships intact with the, with the early mom and pops. Cause, uh, you know, all these retailers have believed in us and signed up for our first shipments and we don't want to just immediately pull the rug out from under them by jacking up their prices. And mm -hmm. so, so we, we, we started incrementally raising our prices. We started getting better at making it. And, and as we got smarter and more experienced making it, we made less mistakes. The cost did start coming down. And eventually we were able to make some, some unit, unit profit, even on the big product we mispriced out of the gate. So what, uh, how far from start to the first um, month in the black? Um, it was probably a good two years. Okay. So what, what's the time frames that, cause you were in and then you had your eventual exit and I want to hear a little bit more about how, what was the triggering event and what was the time frame from start to where these conversations started happening of where you may or may not end up seeing yourself as part of the picture? Yeah. So I personally made some mistakes, of course. Um, but the thing that I was good at going in was sales and marketing. And I feel like we had a pretty successful sales and marketing launch, but the thing I wasn't good at was leading teams of people. And I'm this kind of, you remember from the, the conference, the, uh, the mountain climber personality, that's a small percentage of the population mm -hmm. uh, the, or the lion personality. That's, that's all about, uh, you know, just, just speed and results. And for some reason it had never clicked that not everybody's like me. <laughs> and, and I think I was a hard person to work with and work for. And I was, I was probably frustrating to work with cause I'm, I'm, I'm just wishing manufacturing could get their act together so I can sell more. And they're in this really difficult situation and I didn't have a lot of empathy. I didn't have a lot of understanding. I didn't know what I didn't know. And, um, and so anyways, I feel like there was a, a fissure between me on the front end of the company, the sales, marketing, PR, customer service. That was all my area. And the, and the guys that were back there slugging it out, making the stuff. And, um, and, and I just wasn't very good at communicate, you know, building consensus getting um and, and i just thought you know everybody should like me because i'm getting good results and <laughs> that's yeah, not I, I i hear you it's a it's a challenge too because um you know my old my old business uh that we had with our family was uh i mean it was sales driven right so i mean you sell first figure things out second and um when we switched from selling copiers where you could actually go and install everything and then build a service out behind you when we started selling it services you had to have all of your 
deliverables and service put together before you sold. And we did it the opposite way too. So we had all these rock star salespeople that were selling and we, we couldn't deliver right away. And, and it is, it is a painful tension in front of the client, in front of all the employees. So I, I get it. It's a, it's, it's not an easy dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's that tension I kind of lived in and compounding it was the fact that um, so our investor is a real savvy guy. I was kind of alluding to that earlier. And one of the things he did was he wanted us founders that were the co-owners to kind of feel the pressure. And so even though he was the rich guy that the bank, like whenever we got loans and stuff, they approved the loan because of him, not because of me. I didn't have any money. But he would still make a sign on the dotted line. And personal guarantees and and it was as we were running in the red those first couple of years that that tab ran into the millions and that was some in- insane pressure of having that sort of liabilities attached to me as a young family man and i have little kids and wife and that i'm i mean i'm responsible mm-hmm. for all, for this for this family unit's financial future and i've left a career with benefits and salary and great pay taken a huge pay cut and now I'm signed up for seven figures of liabilities. I have no way to repay. And I'm a minority owner, so I can't exactly even steer the ship. You know, I'm kind mm-hmm. of along for the ride in a sense. And so that, that was tremendously stressful. Well, I, I can only imagine because all you want to do is sell more to eliminate that tab, but you can't deliver your additional sales. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. So, where what was the triggering point, or was it what was the conversation like where things started? You started to see yourself and or exiting the business. So, we we started getting some success in other areas with smaller consumer products that had mass market appeal, and our cash was really thin because we weren't really able to generate a lot of. Uh, black numbers uh from our from our initial lines that were mispriced they were very popular and our brand was really cool but we weren't a cash cow yet and all of a sudden we had these opportunities we started some spin-off brands that had an opportunity to sell backyard type products like imagine an ice chest that looks like a tree stump or uh, a planter box that can replace concrete planters but with a lightweight foam one that looks like a fallen log it's cool stuff like that we have been developing and we were getting some really good feedback from from a lot of the big national big box uh, retailers in that space. And the investor at this point decided that he wanted to kind of double down. He, he could see we, we were establishing a good uh, brain trust on the manufacturing side of things. We were increasing our numbers of patents. We were having tons of opportunities in sale. And he said, it's time to... to increase capacity reinvest more but he decided that if he's going to put millions and more into the company he wanted to be the one um driving the thing and this is where i discovered that um results aren't everything relationship is everything you know and, and like i i kind of found myself on the outs and he he decided that if he's going to reinvest in it, he wanted to, to take over my spot and actually me and one other executive. And he made us a, a buyout offer that was, honestly, it was fair from where we were at. But when you've been 
putting your heart and soul into something and taking that much risk and you're thinking you're going to have this multi-million dollar payday, uh, it was a tough, it was bittersweet. You know, it was a tough pill to swallow. I got a six figure payday. It wasn't, it was, it, I think it was definitely fair. And so I'm not trying to talk bad about the guy, but, uh, Ryan, the golden rule is he who makes the gold makes the rules. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> and that's when I, that's when I learned that. And, and it was kind of like, he, he had all the chips, you know, he kind of had, he kind of had the other owners in his pocket and he had the checkbook and, and he gets to make the terms. And so honestly, he could have treated me a lot less fair and he, it could have been a lot worse, but he allowed me to walk away clean with the check. But it was it was definitely this feeling of, man, I've been pushing this giant boulder for two years up this steep hill, and just to the point to where I can kind of see this crest of the hill and see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. He kind of steps in and says, "I'll take it from here, thanks." You know, and and uh, there's nothing I can do about it. So, be and that 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 is a hugely impactful story because that i can just picture it too when you're having that conversation with him and what were you know how did he what were the terms and conditions in your guys's contracts and stuff were like did he what did was he forcing you to put more money in or how did he get the one up i mean if he's only a third partner um what were some of the conversations that had that were had in order for the valuation for you guys to actually you know, quote unquote, almost, I don't want to call it a hostile takeover, but I mean, he kind of like forced the situation. How did, like, what were some of the things that led to that mechanically? So he, he, in a way he did have majority control because he, there was a a bit of a fissure between me and the inventor who, who kind of had the, uh, the biggest stake in the company. The investor and inventor were kind of teamed up Mm. uh, and were together, could override me on anything. And, and so when there was this frustration like that I was living in between, man, I really want to dig out of this hole. I really wanted this thing to be successful. Hey, I'm doing my part here, guys. I want to sell more. And, and then this, this kind of, uh, I don't know, some sort of, uh, just issues between the two sides of the company and, and Tim's side of the company that was the R&D and, and product development and manufacturing, just thinking like, man, you've got the easy job. Selling it's easy and these things sell themselves and it's hard over here and you don't understand us. And and so when the investor and inventor were were on the same side thinking that sales was, was the easy part and I need to chill out, <laughs> you know, like then then i there's nothing you can do uh, as a, as a small guy there and and i think that looking back now that I've, i have no bitterness about it like i'm cheering for those guys they're still going and they're still growing it's a great company making great products and i'm i'm their number one cheerleader and i and i'm just totally I'm doing other stuff and that's a couple companies ago now but this is uh, that was that situation man it was like uh what were your emotions like? I mean, like, were you? I mean, you're not bitter now. I mean, you're very, you're very, very. You've ta- you've handled it very well. I'm just curious, and like, how? What were the conversations like? I mean, I, it was rough. Have, you must have felt betrayed, man. <laughs> it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. Um, because the the founder, I feel like I was the dude that, um, like, he was really struggling, 
when I met him. And I, I was doing things like trying to help him stay in his house and in his car and and raise the initial money for the prototype, raise help pitch the angel investor that, that brought in the money and, and put us on the map. And and then all of a sudden I was expendable and and uh, it it didn't happen overnight. It was just me and him kind of disconnecting at some point along the way. And it was, and then it just kind of, you realized it one day, like, oh my gosh, like I am, they're, they're serious about, about moving this company forward without me. And, and that was, that was really tough, man. It was really difficult and it did feel like betrayal, but over time I've been able to see their side of it and see the mistakes I made along the way and, and realize like I had just as big a part of that fisher as they did. And, and so that was the thing that was the, probably the biggest takeaway for me, Ryan, was like I just wasn't very mature and I didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence and I didn't see what was happening around me and, until it was too late. Well, I'll tell you what, it takes a big man to be able to admit that and you've got, you've got the empathy now that you never that you said that you didn't have before, so I give you a major props for it. Um, so after this very hard time um, and conversations that you had with these two, um, how did you know, how did you, how did you land on the number? Obviously no number, you know, can pay for betrayal or the feeling of it like that. But, you know, you said that, especially with your background now, you know, being heavily into the deals like this, but how did you, you know, you've got some hindsight biased and you had some feelings then how did they value it? And how do you feel now that they went about it? So the world I'm in now, Ryan is very concrete and I understand exactly what things are worth and why. But back then, when you're in a startup that's a, a consumer brand that has – it's really tough to put a value on it because it makes no financial sense mm-hmm. that why should I get paid a good chunk of money for a company that's essentially not profitable? But how do you value that you've got millions of fans and and you've, you're in 25 states and have this distribution pipeline and have this manufacturing capability and intellectual property – it's, it's really tough to put a value on, and I didn't know Jack about any of that, and I still don't really know a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was essentially like, here's the number, take it or leave it. And it was coming from the people that had the power to, to, to put that in front of me. And so I took it, and, and I looking back, um, I'm still thinking it was probably fair, but it's, it's super hard to value. And then after that, the next company I did was a technology company, and that's even crazier to try to put values on a, a, a rocket ship, fast-growing tech company that's pre-revenue. Um, and so in the startup world, man, it, it, there is no clean answer for that. It stuff's worth what people will pay for it, and people are betting. You know, people are betting on, on the horse and, and betting on the rider, but it's, it's, not, it's totally different than a financial investor that's investing in an established profitable, profitable business, which is you know, the world I'm in now. So what's yeah that it's an it's a very clear perspective and I appreciate that too because I've I've got people that I know with businesses on both sides the pre revenue and the the startup and you know it's it's all pie in the sky and I actually I like how you said it. it's like it's like betting I mean that's really what it is isn't it and um, totally yeah uh, and then versus the concrete world where you've got cash flow statements and balance sheets and it's you got something that that actually makes sense right. <laughs> Yeah, Angel Investing, which is the first two companies I was part of, were Angel backed. Those guys aren't investors in the traditional sense. There is no 
formula. Your bet, you, it's truly is a bet. Like there's no, you can't make a financial case that this guy should have put, given us a half million dollars for thirty three percent or whatever it was mm-hmm. of the company. Like that makes no sense on paper, but <laughs> but, but he liked guys, you and it was a fake tree. <laughs> yeah, if you like the product, you like the vision, you like the team, you like the idea. What these guys do is they'll bet on ten and they'll understand that eight are going to fail, one's going to be mediocre, and one's going to be the one that makes up for the other eight that failed times two. You know, and that's 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 kind of how they play it. And the good ones, the best of the best angels, their ratio is not much better than that. They just they get a couple a couple yeah. good ones out of 10. And and so I was fortunate that my first one with all the what behind the ears, uh, you know, green going in, in my twenties, I was able to be one of those, uh, few that actually made it and stood the test. And here we are 2017, six, seven years later, and they're still going. And so I'm, I'm proud to say that was the first, first one I did is still, still going around, still making money, still making a difference in the marketplace. And, and I'm happy to see that. That's a lot of odds to be right there. It really is. And, um, so that it kind of spins into a, uh, I think a good conversation about what you're doing now and how you got into the business brokerage world, because I mean, you're, it sounds like you're actually you know, running hard and fast and doing really well. So explain a little bit about what it's like and how you got into into the current place that you're at. So I have a company called Texas Business Buyers, and I don't even like using the word broker because I feel like business brokers have ruined that word. (laughs) (laughs) uh, My first experience, uh, post-Nature Blinds, when I got bought out, I suddenly had a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And for the first time in years, I didn't have to like show up somewhere <laughs> and I didn't, and also didn't need to immediately get a paycheck. Um, so I had enough cushion that I could, yeah, I took a little sabbatical. I traveled a little bit with my wife and crossed off a couple bucket list things and that was cool. And, and then I was looking for the next thing I was going to do. And I, that bad experience from being a minority holder with all the weight and responsibility of business owner, but, but not able to totally steer the thing. Uh, I had a bad taste from that. And I wanted to, I was looking at maybe I should get into a franchise or a business that I can own and control. That's a little bit smaller and less aggressive. And, and, uh, I started looking for stuff for sale and that's where I learned what a business broker was. I really had no clue, Ryan, to be honest. I was, mm-hmm. I was just kind of Googling around like buy a business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and seeing what popped up and I found these marketplaces with people selling established businesses for sale and I started inquiring and filling out forms and calling people and what I discovered was it was a very disjointed industry with a lot of I mean the experience you get varies wildly from broker to broker and there's a lot of kind of hobbyists and there's a lot of people that just won't call you back won't give you the time of day and you know, I would just be trying to like learn about an opportunity and they would send me a 10 page, you know, sign, you know, let us run your credit. Let us see all your <laughs> bank accounts. And so, yeah, like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Like, I'm not ready. You know, like, let's send me the date? website, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, can we have dinner before you ask me to your apartment? You know, like, whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and so I was not impressed by business brokers but i also saw that uh reading the tea leaves i was i was looking at opportunities i always want to get in front of baby boomers and 
I just saw that there's just trillions of dollars of wealth tied up in the small family business. And most of them are going to be selling in the next seven to 10 years. Most of them don't have a succession plan or somebody to take over. Their kids went off to school and did something else. And they're being served by this very poor group of business brokers in general. There are some great ones out there and I've learned from some really good ones, but as a whole, I think even most brokers would agree with me. Like the, the, the industry hasn't made a good name for itself. And so, so what I'm trying to do is kind of come away from that and challenge all the assumptions of what does it take to buy or sell a business. And I've basically built, um, and it's always a work in progress, Ryan, but I've built a, I'm, I'm trying to build a machine that almost like a, like a match.com or something where I can love on people like myself that were, they had some money, they had some skills and experience. They really want to buy a business well, instead of ignoring them, why don't I take them in, learn about them, build a profile on them, and kind of keep a good database of cash in hand buyers. And then when I find really good opportunities, I could I can basically curate pre-screened, priced right, quality, cash flowing businesses to really good matches in the entrepreneur to entrepreneur small business space. And And I don't really think anybody's doing that. There's some there's some really sophisticated players when you get to like the middle market of uh, the M&A world where people are selling multi-million dollar businesses. There's some great, great people there. But in the, you know, Joe's Tire Shop, been around for 30 years, makes this guy 200000 a year. Um, how does he sell his business? Well, he's either on his own or going to deal with generally someone who's very unprofessional and is not going to do Joe very good justice. And I wanted to take that professionalism I saw in the middle market space and bring it to the lower, uh, to like the premium Main Street space. Mm-hmm. And most people have never done that, uh, never figured out how to do that. And I think the only way you can do that is you've got to leverage technology really well, and you've got to be able to process large amounts of people efficiently. And a lot of the, the current brokers just don't know how to do that. And so I took kind of that experience I had from Nature Blinds and from the tech company to to this space, and, and that's, what I've, that's what I'm doing now is, is I'm just – I'm trying to leverage technology, leverage a team, and we have a great, great group of people that are uh, involved in this company with me that are that are experts in their areas of of pricing and value. So I have a pricing guy who is really good at it, an appraiser. Um, we have inside sales people, telemarketing people, internet marketing people, and we all work together to deliver a really good result using the base, the best tech tools, the best team approach. And it's just kind of my way to innovate in a, in a stale industry that I think needs a lot of help. Well, and you've got a awesome experience and mission and passion of why you're doing it too, because of all the experience and, uh, and exposure you've had to various situations like that too. So I, and I think it's a fantastic, cause I agree with you. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the mainstream uh, business owners got, you know he's he's pretty much at the mercy of the dude that send or the gal that sends the email blast out and says hey who wants to buy a tire shop so I mean there's there's no rhyme or reason for most of the stuff that goes on out there um, because of all the different because of the vast variety and the, the volume of transactions and business owners and buyers that you're meeting if you were to pick one story that's your favorite what what would it be. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's probably a lot to ask for. <laughs> Let me think here. Well, I should have had some. Let's let's uh, let's go to 
a uh, a deal we did last year that was a fun one. Um, so I like I was able to get a uh, a famous bicycle shop in Austin called ATX Bikes transitioned from one owner to the next and it was actually the manager of the shop that ended up buying it and his name's frank Pryor. and shout out to frank hi buddy so <laughs> we can talk about this now because because we've had press releases and stuff so everything we do and before the transaction is very confidential and hush hush but but frank i don't think you mind me saying this he he didn't have the money to put the kind of down payment uh, traditionally would be needed on a company like this. But man, the guy eats, sleeps and breathes bicycles and he had become a very indispensable manager for this, for the shop. And he has just tons of experience. He's got his own gear, uh, road racers and people from all over the country go to learn from this guy. And I mean, he's, uh, he can analyze you on a bike and see how you're moving right or wrong. And, and, and get your stuff tweaked and set up. And he's, he's just rain man on this stuff. He's amazing. And he knows numbers really well. And I was able to come into that situation and we structured a, a, a deal with the seller where, where I said, Hey, this is what your business is worth. Okay. Um, we want to give Frank first chance. And if we can't, we got to take it to, if we can't get it done, we're going to take it to an outside buyer and package it up and we'll try to keep keep frank employed here but um but we were able to get really creative and uh get the seller a really fair deal and cashed out and get keep get frank into the driver's seat and um and and find uh, a financial institution to get on board but i just love kind of building that puzzle Mm -hmm. and now you've got the guy who kind of really helped grow and and build the culture of that company but didn't necessarily have the means to be able to walk into his dream without having to like you know he's been working in bicycles forever and, and everybody in that industry knows that you don't get into it for the money right. <laughs> you get into the passion and now he's got well, you know one of the top bike shops in austin uh and his ownership so i love putting together deals like that and i love that we didn't have to bring in an outsider a money person and we were able to get it to the guy with a passion and, and they're just stronger than ever and growing. And there was all kinds of, of obstacles. Um, the landlords didn't want to do the deal cause the seller had money and had credit and had a history. And now Frank needs his own lease in his name. We need to get the seller off it. And the amount of just hoops we had to jump through to get them to, uh, be okay with it. And thankfully we found somebody at the, it was a real estate investment REIT that owned the, the property and we found some of those guys that were into bikes and kind of see him in action and really impress them with his skill set and and so i mean it was totally everything about it was outside the box and and every broker that i told to that we're going to try to do it this way and basically do it a zero down payment with um like they're like the landlord is never going to go for it. This is never going to happen. Like it's impossible. I've I've been doing this for twenty years. I've never seen that happen, and it happened. I can all, all and, I can see is Clint going challenge accepted. <laughs> exactly. That, that's that mountain climber thing. That red flag. And I've had that's probably the 
fourth or fifth time in a couple years, I've had somebody say, that's impossible. Nobody does that like that. And we were like, okay, I bet you we can, and we do it. And, uh, gosh, another, I mean, Brad and I, my partner here, we both went to business appraisal school and became uh, business certified appraisers. And just because we're young and we need to, like, we mainly got it just so we could have letters by our names and, and act like we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, did I? But we, you know, we're we're young. We're the new kids on the block, and we we have to go the extra mile to kind of prove ourselves in this space because uh, we don't have all the gray hair and we don't have all the decades of experience. And we're we're learning as we go every deal. But but we've had times now where an appraisal came back from a bank and it was it didn't meet our our number, and we knew it should, and and we were able to dissect it. And find out, like, on page 38 of this appraisal, there was a fatal flaw that the appraiser, who is a multi-decade appraiser, missed. That's and, cool. and some revenue he didn't consider. And we found it, and we presented our case to the bank and the appraiser, and they said, you know what? I've never seen this before, but you're right. And we're going to – that does, that should that should appraise for that. And, and we got our seller the number. And it was still a great, it was a great deal for everybody, but that was another thing. It was like, Oh, we've never seen that before. That's never happened. The banker told us that. That's a good yeah. feeling. I love it. Well, so Clint, that's what we from, man. I love it. I, you, 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 your words of wisdom throughout the, the last hour have been awesome. And you know, I think your experience that you're bringing to the market is fantastic because you're using all the passion and all the, all the, all the stuff you've gone through to really make a difference, which is, which is really dang cool. What is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? So a good th- a good way is just visit our websites texasbusinessbuyers.com all spelled out. And emailing is probably the most efficient way to get to me. Clint C L I N T at texasbusinessbuyers.com is how to get to me directly. Um, if you are uh, anyone's welcome to contact me. I give out advice and if as freely as I uh, as I'm able to. Uh, I love helping entrepreneurs get started. I, I was really blessed along the way with people helping me, and I love helping others. But if you're in the state of Texas and you own a business or want to own a business, um, you need to you need to connect. We need we need to you need to be in our network, and uh, we could probably help each other out. Clint, thanks so much for coming on the show. Cool. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for the opportunity to share.